Our Lord and our God, we come before you in Jesus' name. We do thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the, the strength, Lord, in the midst of uh, intense heat to come out, Lord, and to, to hear your word. We thank you, God, that we did not stay home, but that you gave us, again, the strength to come and to desire your word, to learn, Father. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, minds, Lord, that are understanding. God, I decrease so that you may increase. I become less so that you can become more. To you and to you alone be the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I will say as we begin, there may be some things that as we are going through the lesson tonight, they may be hard for you to follow sometimes. I just want to encourage you that as we go through them, don't give up. Don't shut your mind off. When you shut your mind off, then the rest of the service will mean, will mean nothing to you. So I encourage you as we're going through all of the information that you don't shut your mind off when you come against something that may be challenging for you. Amen. Last week, we took a, a short alternate route to our series that we are supposedly beginning this month called What is a Healthy Church Member? Uh, that short route has led us to why church membership is biblical. And then that lesson led us to why uh, a church confession is biblical. We brought that subject up last week. Last week, we considered why uh, a confession is important in the local church. In that lesson, the subject of our confession, which is the second London Baptist Confession, was brought to our attention, which raised the question, where did we come from? Where did we come from? As a result, tonight we will explore the history of the Reformed Baptist, or as Isaiah said earlier, the particular Baptist, as they were originally called. Where did these believers come from? What is their lineage, which is also at least the leadership of this church, where our lineage, our lineage, it is our lineage. Did they come from the Reformation that we learned so much about? And as I said earlier, there is an interesting story, but it is not, uh, I don't know if I would say it is not. You may not find it, or we may not find it as interesting as that of Tyndale or Huss or Luther. And it's more, more, the reason why is because we don't have as much information as we do about that we do concerning Tyndale and Luther and Huss. We have more information about those men than we do about the men that we're going to talk about tonight. So keep that in mind. The story of the Reformed Baptists is it is interesting. It is moving. And like I said before, we don't have all of the information, but it is nonetheless just as powerful. So. Where did these English Baptists come from? How did they come to form a confession that we believe is the best representation of what the Bible teaches? As I said before, they did not first call themselves Reformed Baptists. They originally called themselves, or they were originally known as the Particular Baptists. Why? They believed in the doctrine of Particular Redemption. That is that Christ died solely and exclusively for his own people. Therefore, they were called particular Baptists. They believed that Christ did not make a, a general atonement, hoping that somehow, some way, people would come to believe, but rather that Jesus Christ made a specific atonement for particular people and that he would not fail to save all the people that he had died for. Does that make sense? So... 
They were called particular because they believed Jesus died for a particular group of people and that that sacrifice that Jesus made was effective for them. So they were called particular Baptists. There were, uh, there were particular, these were the particular Baptists, but there was another group at that time in England and they were known as the, the General Baptists. So there are the particular Baptists and there was another group called the General Baptists. The General Baptists believed in general redemption or general atonement. So if you take what we just said concerning particular Baptists, the general Baptists believe the opposite. They believe that Christ, when he died, that he died for all people without exception, and that it was up to man to receive the work of redemption from Christ. This is called Arminianism. This is called Arminianism. It is the most popular, well-received or most received theology from men. It is what we most naturally are born with, thinking that we have the choice to choose God. These two groups were separate from one another, and they had very little contact with each other. So the particular Baptists did not have much interaction with the general Baptists. <clears throat> now, we know much about men like Luther and Calvin and Edwards, but we are unaware of the men who wrote our confession the men who we have the most in common with concerning what we teach. So today, we are going to talk a little bit about those men. But before we do that, we want to find out where did they come from? How did they come to become particular Baptists? Now, just real quick, Baptist meaning they believe that one who is a believer should be baptized. And also, when they are baptized, that they are baptized by immersion, meaning they are completely dunked in water, as it were. Now, let's find out where they came from. January 1642, maybe you can see that there, is the first time that we could identify a church where there was a marriage between wholehearted Reformed theology and the practice of baptism by immersion. Again, being completely immersed in water. Up until January 14, uh, 1642, no Baptists practiced immersion. The practice was taking water or taking a wet cloth and washing the face or pouring it on someone's head. That was the, the form of baptism up until that time. But let's take a step back from 1642. And in order to take a step back, we're going to have to take a big, gigantic step back. Okay? The Puritan movement. How many of you have ever heard of Puritans? How many of you have ever wondered, what is a Puritan? Good. The Puritan movement had existed in England ever since the 16th century. Now, again, who are Puritans? What are Puritans? The Reformation, it came to England. Now, England is where we're going to be for a little while. As a matter of fact, England is where we're going to stay. The Reformation of Luther and Calvin, it came to England in the most interesting of ways. The Church of England broke from the Church of Rome when in 1534, Henry VIII, there he is there, nice picture Henry, was denied a divorce from his wife. You may remember his wife in our teaching of the Reformation. Do you remember his wife? Henry VIII was a devout Catholic. The national religion of England was Roman Catholicism. He was married to a woman by the name of Catherine of Aragon. Let's see, maybe we can get her picture there. 
There she is there. Catherine of Aragon. It is believed that he wanted a divorce from Catherine because she could no longer bear any children. And the one child that she did bear was a girl. Her name, this is important, her name is or was Mary. Therefore, because Henry had no male heir to succeed his throne, he sought a divorce so that he could have more children. And hopefully an heir, a male heir to the throne. Because Henry was a devout Catholic, he asked for permission from the Pope, which was Pope Clement VII. But Pope Clement, he denied Henry's request. Now, the reason for his denial was mostly for political reasons. It wasn't for theological reasons. It was mostly for political reasons. Angry that the Pope would not grant his divorce he decided to break from the, from the Roman Catholic Church, which was the, the Church of England, to break from the Roman Catholic Church and start his own church, where he would be the ultimate authority. And therefore, he could do as he pleased. This was the beginning, though, of the Reformation in England. The teachings of the Reformers were now able to enter into the land of England, and the truth spread like wildfire, because they were no longer under... The church, the Roman Catholic church. So the reformers and the Reformation truth started to pour into England. And the church began to be greatly influenced by those who were now free to read the works of Martin Luther and read the works of John Calvin and, and so on. But as these people began to grow in the truth of God's word, uh, they also started to face trials the truth was beginning to grow. It was being established under a new leader. And that new leader was, if you could go to this next picture there, that young man there, Edward VI. Edward VI was uh, nine years old when he took the throne. His father had passed away, and the only male heir that Henry had was this young man, Edward. And Edward was raised, if you remember from our teaching of the Reformation, Edward was raised in a Reformed kind of faith. He was raised in Reformed theology. His tutors were Reformed teachers. So you have this young man who's being raised with these foundational biblical truths, and then he finally gets to power. And what does he do? He makes the decision to make Reformed theology, or the Protestant faith, the official religion of England. At nine years old. But then, six years later, when he is 15 years old, he becomes very sick. And he dies. And on his deathbed, he passes the throne over to his cousin, a woman by the name of Lady Jane Grey. Now, why do you think he said, Lady Jane Grey, you must take the throne? Because Lady Jane Grey was also passionate for the gospel. She was also a Protestant in her faith. She knew Greek. She knew Hebrew. And she knew all about the Reformation, and she was passionate for making sure that the gospel remained strong in England. You should learn about Lady Jane Grey. She's an amazing woman. And she was very young at the time as well. As Lady Jane Grey took the throne, her reign lasted all but 13 days. Because there's one person who said, that throne actually belongs to me. Mary, the first child of Henry. Once Edward died, Mary said, that throne doesn't belong to my cousin. That throne belongs to me because I am actually heir to Henry. So Mary 
takes the throne back and she makes sure that Lady Jane Grey is killed. What do you think is first on her list? Now, remember, her father left her mother so that he could go and have a male heir. And what did he allow into the country? He allowed the Protestant faith. So the first thing that Mary does when she gets into the throne is she returns England back to Rome. And not only that, but as soon as Mary returns England back to Rome, she goes on a rampage and she begins to murder and chase down any pastors, any Protestants who were teaching the Reformed faith. Those pastors, those Reformed people ran for their lives. Her thirst for blood, for anyone who was a Protestant, earned her the fabulous name, Bloody Mary. There she is. So they ran for their lives. And as they ran to their lives, they ran to places where they could freely worship God and where any form of worship was accepted, not any form of worship, where their form of worship, which was the Protestant faith, the Reformed faith, where that form of worship was accepted. So they went to a place, of all places, Geneva, Switzerland. Now, what is going on in Geneva, Switzerland? There is a man there who was teaching the scriptures like no one had ever seen, no one had ever heard of, and he was doing it with clarity, and he was doing it consistently, and he was doing it so well that he by the grace of God, trained some of the greatest men of God that we know. His name was John Calvin. These who are fleeing from Bloody Mary are going to Geneva. And when they go to Geneva, they are sitting under the teachings of John Calvin. They sit under the teachings. They grow in their faith. They grow immensely in understanding. And then Mary, she dies at the age of 42. They say possibly from ovarian cancer. But her sister Elizabeth, Elizabeth I... She takes the throne and she quickly undoes the many changes that Mary initiated. And all those who had fled for their lives realized now it's it's safe for you to come home. Now, they had learned a lot how, as they had been apart from England. And now they are returning to a Protestant friendly society. And there's Elizabeth there. This this change enabled those who fled from England to return and when they returned, they brought something with them. They first brought with them the understanding of true Reformed theology. They also brought back with them a, an understanding that there was no need for an overarching church per se, like the Church of England, to control them, especially when it came to the Roman Catholic faith. They also brought with them last and finally what's known as the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was actually the first study Bible. It was equipped with notes concerning what the Reformed faith taught. And they brought that back and began to copy it all throughout the land. When they returned to England, they began to enter into universities and teach the doctrines of the Reformation that they learned while sitting under John Calvin. <coughs> Reformation began to sweep through the churches. Queen Elizabeth had reigned for 50 years. But while she reigned and while she made changes, she didn't completely reform the church to the acceptance of those who were coming back to England. She, she created what is known as the Via Media or the Middle Way. It was a sort of middle road between full-fledged reformed churches and reformed theology, which the, those who had fled to Geneva, which they desired, and kind of an old style of Roman Catholicism. 
So she was willing to change some of the doctrine, but she wasn't willing to change a lot of the external things that were done in the church, like the crossing of yourselves, like the priest and like the mass. There was a lot of things that she was not willing to get rid of. She wanted to, as it were, make everyone happy. But those who came back from Geneva and other places, Holland especially, they were not happy. Elizabeth wanted an Anglican church that was controlled by the crown, by her, one in which she would be in control, but in some ways still reflected Protestantism. She wanted to do both. She wanted to have both. Most who came back from the exile were were very unhappy with this attempt. They wanted to, now here's the word, they wanted to reform or purify the church. Even further, they believed the church needed to be completely purified of all of its Roman Catholic tendencies. Therefore, they gained the name the Puritans. They wanted to purify the church. They believed that the Church of England was only partially reformed or partially pure. They wanted it completely pure. They wanted to have a church like what they experienced in Geneva. And there are people who wrote about Geneva and said, there is no city in all the earth that is more holy or godly than this city. And they credit that to the church. When Elizabeth died in 1603, there was no heir to her throne. So her cousin, James VI of Scotland, was assumed or called to assume the throne. His title then became James I of England. James is coming to England, and they are excited about James. They are so excited that they are translating a Bible. A Bible that they are going to honor him by, by naming it after him. You guys know it as the King James Bible. Many of the Puritans of the Church of England were, were excited that James of Scotland is coming to England. Now, why do you think they would be excited that James from Scotland is coming to England? Well, because Scotland was thoroughly reformed by another reformer by the name of John Knox. John Knox was trained under John Calvin. Are you excited about that? That should make you, okay, you should be, okay, good. Give me, give me an ooh or something. There we go. That makes me feel better. <laughs> so John Knox was one of the great leaders of the Reformation there in Scotland. James is raised in Presbyterianism, if you will. He is raised as a reformed believer. But because James had come from a country that had so much influence from the church, he was not willing to go to another country and see that kind of power and that kind of influence all held within the church. They believed that James was going to come and make all the changes necessary to purify the church from all Catholicism. They believed that James, because he was raised in the Reformed Church, in the Reformed faith, that he was going to purify the church. 1604, a conference was held. The Puritans, uh, led by a man by the name of Henry Jacob, that's an important name, organized this conference as a means to express their desire to James of him completely reforming the Church of England. James responded in a very interesting way, these four words here. No bishop, no king. No bishop, no king. What did James mean? James recognized that the only way by which he could have full control over all the nation of England was through the church. 
This should be an interesting note for you. It was required by law for everyone to go to church on the Lord's Day. I wish we had that today, but we live in America, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. It was required by law for everyone to go to church on Sunday, the Lord's Day. And so what was the means through which James could have communication to all the country? Well, all he had to do was send his... uh, Send his henchmen, not henchmen, that's not a good word. Send his informers to the churches. And the churches could all have received information to James, from James, within two weeks because of the priest or the churches or the pastors that he was in charge of. So he decided that he was going to have a means through which he could police the entire country and it was going to be through the church. And he was not willing to give that up. He was uncomfortable also, again, with the power that the church had in Scotland. So he decided that he would not allow them to govern themselves, but that he would be the supreme leader of the country and the church. No bishop, no king. James was going to be the man. The Puritans were very unhappy by this or because of this. The decision, it put them on the outside. It put them on the fringes of society because society began to look at them in ways that they are now controlled by the king. And they didn't want that. So it became hard for them to find positions of ministry. And many of them lost their positions as ministers. James was king until 1625. And he died. When he died, his son Charles I succeeded him as the king. Now James was raised as a Protestant. There's that guy, Charles. James was raised as a Protestant. Charles was an Arminian. So all of the things that were taking place concerning the the benefits of Protestantism and the benefits of the Reformed faith, they were all being reversed by this man, Charles. Charles had a Roman Catholic wife named Henrietta Maria. And Charles, again, was raised with no sympathy toward the Protestants. And he did something very interesting, and I think it was to thumb the nose at the Protestants. He made a man by the name of William Laud. That's a very important name, William Laud. And there he is, next page. William Laud, he appointed William and gave him as he was the archbishop of all the church. He gave him the authority of being archbishop of all the church of England. William, this man, was committed to two very important theological points. The first, he was committed to Arminianism. He was a hard-line Arminian. The church of England at this time was was under and adhered to a document called, and I mentioned it last week, the 39 Articles. You guys remember me saying the 39 Articles? The Church of England at that time believed or held to the 39 Articles. What's so important about that? The 39 Articles are a very Calvinistic document in terms of the sovereignty of God in salvation. The 39 Articles were written from a Reformed perspective, William Laud, now here's why this is big. William Laud outlawed, made it illegal for any kind of Calvinistic interpretation of the 39 Articles. He's an Arminian. The main document that the Church of England adheres to, kind of like our confession, is the 39 Articles. And it is extremely Calvinistic. It was written by Calvinists. William Laud comes in and says... You are not allowed to interpret this in any kind of Calvinistic way. Now, that is very hard to do. 
Because there's no other way to interpret the 39 articles than from a Calvinistic perspective. It would make no sense to look at those documents or to look at that document and read it any other way. It would be like trying to interpret Romans chapter 9 without looking at the sovereignty of God in salvation and saying that's not what that means. Well, if you walk through it scripture by scripture as we have done in the race, there's no other way to interpret it. Laud was essentially making the decree that say the 39 articles don't say what they obviously do say. And they don't mean what they obviously do mean. The Puritans were fed up. They had enough. Many of them left England. And where did they go? Well, they went to a place where they saw worship, where they saw that they could worship God as they saw fit. They went to a place where they could go and freely worship God as they believed that he decreed and he revealed. They went to Holland, and then they also went to another place, a place called New England, which eventually became America. Enter Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and why did they come? For religious freedom. These are our forefathers. Here are men who are preaching the reformed doctrines and all of a sudden they are told they cannot preach those things or they will face being banned from preaching or go to prison. And many of them did not leave and go to New England or Holland. They went to prison. And some of those men we'll talk about tonight. The second point that, that William Laud was very, very passionate about was this. It is known as, and this is a big word, but I think you guys should pay attention to it, high church sacramentalism. High church sacramentalism. Especially infant baptism. William Laud believed and decreed that the church must teach that the infant or infant baptism was the first step in the work of grace. That infant baptism was the means of entry into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed that when the infant was baptized, the infant was taking the first step on the road to salvation. In many ways, Laud's doctrine is almost indistinguishable from the teachings of Rome. And you can see why the, the Protestants were uh, upset at this, this law. The teachings of Rome say, when you strike or when you sprinkle the water on the forehead of the child, original sin and the heart is cleansed. That's what Rome teaches. Uh, that's no lie either. Uh, I, heard, I read, read recently on our iTunes, somebody commented that they heard the, the, the sermon on the mass and said, you're a liar, stop lying. Um, they should read their own theologians. <clears throat> Anyways, there is a, a whole wing in the Church of England that are Puritan. They are teaching the doctrines of grace. They are preaching the five solas. That there is nothing sacred about infant baptism. That the application of water on the body might be an outward sign, but it does nothing to the state of the heart. William Laud is forcing and enforcing the church to teach the doctrine and practice the doctrine of infant baptism. That it is a work of grace. That it begins the process of salvation in the heart of the child. Laud forces these teachings on the church and he persecutes the church based upon them not teaching the doctrines of Arminianism and them not teaching and practicing high, high church sacramentalism. Now, if you can imagine, that's a difficult thing to go against your conscience, to go against what you believe the Bible teaches. When James I uh, marginalized the Puritans, 
The Puritans grew unhappy. They had seen the middle way of Elizabeth go too slowly. They wanted to, they wanted the church to be reformed quicker. They, they actually became known as the, the, the hasty Protestants because they were so impatient about reformation. When James marginalized them, some of them decided to do something so drastic. And, and we have to see this as now from their point of view. They broke away from the Church of England. And they started to start their own gatherings. They became known as the separatists. Now, we here today, we leave a church, no big deal. Nobody knows, nobody cares. Uh, well, people know, people care. But you get the point. Back then, to break away from the Church of England, you could go to jail for this. You could lose your life for this. And these individuals were saying, we cannot put up with what the Church of England is forcing us to teach. We have no other choice but to break away. They became known as the separatists. And in separating from the church, they began to gather in their own little churches, which were known as congregational churches. Much like what you are seeing right here, right now. In 1616, the most important of these gatherings was formed by a name again, a man by the name of Henry Jacob. He decided that he could no longer, and he was a church, he was a minister in the Church of England. He decided that he could no longer serve in the Church of England. And he broke away from the church. And he started a congregational gathering, meeting with other believers who were also frustrated with what England was forcing them to do. It was illegal. By law, you had to go to the Church of England. But Jacob and others could no longer do that in good conscience. Now, they did not throw stones at those who stayed in the Church of England, but they recognized that they themselves could not stay in that church without violating their own conscience. They came out and they formed a church. And that church was known by the name of their three pastors. It was the Henry Jacob, John Lathrop, and Henry Jesse Church. It was called the Jacob Lathrop Jesse Church. Yeah, nice name. When Laud comes to be, William Laud, comes to be the Bishop of Canterbury, the church is regularly meeting together. This little separatist congregational church is meeting together. And they're doing it in secret. They're doing it in secret. This church, a small church, is struggling with issues that are being pressed upon them by the Church of England. They believe in the Calvinistic doctrines. They believe in the Reformed doctrines. And they're very uncomfortable with this sacramental baptism for infants in this local congregational church, small separatist church. A discussion begins to arrive over the notion of infant baptism and the doctrines of grace. They're, they're talking about these things. These theological points begin to consume the minds of those within that small, separatist, congregational church. And if you can imagine, every time we get together, we're just talking about these theological points, and we're trying to find in Scripture, what does it say? Where does it say these things? 1633, there was a small group of people within that church. That, that, that church is adding. There are people that are coming to it. There's a small group within the small group that come to the conclusion that infant baptism was invalid. Now, here's why. Why, why do they say it, it's, it's, it's invalid? It's because it was administered to them, it was given to them by those who were ministers of the Church of England, which they now consider to be a compromised church. 
So they're saying, our infant baptism, because they were all baptized as infants. They start to say, our infant baptism is invalid because it was given to me, was administered to me by a compromised minister who's a part of a compromised church. Therefore, I don't see my baptism as a true baptism. Yeah, you can imagine the struggle. Now, these are very serious issues. And maybe some of you have struggled with those issues as you've come to this church and say, maybe I should be baptized again. These people were seriously talking for years about whether or not they should be baptized again. 1638. There's a second division. Another division within the church by a man by the name of John Spilsbury. He's a part of, a, of that church, the Jacob Lathrop Jesse Church. And the decision is based not upon, now listen close, not upon the administrator of baptism, but upon those who should receive baptism. They're asking questions like, should infants even be baptized? Now, they're, they're taking a step back, the church before them, or the group before them, and saying, the one who baptized me is a compromised man from a compromised church. And the more they begin to have this discussion, they begin to ask themselves, wait a minute. Should infants even be baptized anyways? And John Spillsbury was really the one who led that kind of division or led that kind of discussion. And that church separated. Now, when they separate, they're not separating as if they hate each other. They're separating knowing this person is doing what he's doing in good conscience and we cannot judge them. They're studying through the scriptures. And there's something that they're not seeing in scripture that's being enforced upon them by the archbishop that they can't find anywhere in scripture. And that is babies being baptized. In 1638, a group from the Jacob Lathrop Jesse Church start the, here we go, the very first particular Baptist church. They're not yet practicing uh, believer's baptism, but they're heading in that direction. They were separatists. They were congregational. They believed in Calvinism. They believed in Baptism, And I said believers, but they didn't believe yet in believers' baptism, but they're heading that way. And they did all of that in the face of persecution. There's one more step. One more step that needs to be taken. And it's going to be taken. We have to take our step, take another step back or at least go back to the Jacob Lathrop Jesse Church. Now, that, can you imagine being in that church at that time? All the discussions that are coming out of that church. And once again, in 1640... The church is being led by Henry Jesse. The church is still discussing these different issues of baptism and so forth. They would meet on Fridays for discussions. And these discussions or these meetings on Fridays they would call conferences. Not like conferences that you and I are are knowing. But they were meetings. They were usually done in secret. And they usually met into small groups. Two separate groups so they could avoid uh, persecution. And they were meeting for a year. And the one thing they discussed for one year was infant baptism. In one of those two groups, led by a man by the name of Richard Blunt, they came to the conclusion that infant baptism was wrong and unbiblical. And that the only biblical way of baptism was believer's baptism by immersion. That someone confesses their faith in Christ, then they are to be baptized. And when they are baptized, they are completely immersed in water, symbolizing death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we sit here and say, big deal, we've been doing that for years. Where did that begin? Well, I don't think it began here. I think it was recovered here. I think what they recovered and uncovered 
was that which was taught in Scripture. I believe it was that which John the Baptist and Jesus was doing in the scriptures. I believe they recovered what the early church was doing as they met in separate groups, as they met in congregational groups that were not uh, led by overseers per se, in a sense that there was another church telling them what to do. But that they were small, local, independent, congregational, separatist churches who were practicing believers' baptism who are practicing the teachings of the Bible, which we now know today as doctrines of grace, that they recovered that which was taught in Scripture. In 1642, actually, they began to ask themselves in 1642, what should we do? And in January, now, January, we know January here in Bakersfield. January in London, 1642, 53 people were baptized in the River Thames. Thames River. Now, 53 people in January in London. London, where the sun barely comes up in January. It was freezing cold. 53 people were so convinced of their faith that they were baptized in the river. And they were doing it illegally. We hear of those who are being baptized in China waters and doing so in the middle of the night. They are a reflection of what was happening even then. That's exactly the kind of picture you should be picturing in your mind, that they are going into those waters. And because of their strong belief that this is biblical, this is right, this is what the scriptures teach, they're being dumped, dunked in that frozen water, coming back up hot fire uh, with their faith. In January 1642, we have the first Calvinistic Baptist church who practiced believers' baptism by immersion. They had come a long way within two years. Within two years, there were seven particular Baptist churches in London practicing all the things that we just said. That's huge. Within 21 years, there were 121 particular Baptist churches in London. By 1700, there were over 200 churches. Obviously, people began to read their scriptures. So our roots, they are from the Puritans. They're separatists, they're independent, they're congregational, they're Calvinists, they are reformers. They are our roots. And I believe they go further back than that. to the very scriptures that we teach week by week. All of our understanding of what we are must be understood in the light of the Puritan movement that was present in England. They were the ones who molded and shaped our confession of faith. Who is that guy? Oh, we'll talk about him right now. That is some of our leaders, some of the, the early fathers. And when I say early fathers, we are the youngest in this lineage of Christianity. There are Christians who came before us that we refer to as church fathers because they're older than us. Not because they're our fathers in any other sense, but the fact that we are the youngest of all believers of all generations. They have long since passed and we are here now. So we look back to them as those who have gone before us. And it is okay to call them our fathers in that sense. William Kiffin is one of them. Born in 1616, died in 1702. I'm just going to give you guys six really quick as we end. He was a leader of the particular Baptist cause in London. Very important man. He was orphaned as a young boy. His parents died in the plague. You guys remember from the Reformation teaching the plague. The Lord worked in his heart as a teenager and he would go from church to church throughout the week. They didn't have churches just on the Lord's Day or services on the Lord's Day. They had services all throughout the week. And as... 
he was, the Lord was working in his heart, he would go and hear different Puritan speakers in every single church all throughout the week. And so this man was greatly encouraged by the faith. The Lord also prospered him. He became very rich. So rich that it is said that King Charles I asked him for a loan. The average wage, uh, uh, a good salary for a minister during that time was 75 pounds. I don't know. Oh, 75 pounds is about $100 today. A good wage for a minister was about 75 pounds. King Charles came to William Kiffin and asked him, can I borrow 40,000 pounds? Think about asking that. And if $100 today, if you can imagine, you do the math, I can't do it. William Kiffin's response was, I don't have 40000 for you, but I can give you 10000 if you would accept it. And I think he probably thought he saved himself 30,000 pounds by responding in such a way. <clears throat> Kiffin was beloved because of his great wealth, because he used it for the benefit of the good of the church. He was a pastor of the Devonshire Square Church in London. It was one of the most prominent churches of all the particular Baptist churches in the 1700s. He would come to the aid of all the ministers, all the, the those who were being persecuted, and he himself was in prison for the faith. So he wasn't just some rich guy. He was a person that was actively preaching and sharing the gospel and also was in prison for his faith. His books are hard to come by, but how many of you have ever heard of John Bunyan? Heard of John Bunyan? Yeah. John Bunyan... We know of. He wrote three articles, though, within his works. Uh, one of them is the Confession of My Faith, Church Communion, and another one that, which uh, I can't, I couldn't find. But in those articles, he's arguing against this man, William Kiffin. Kiffin argued that baptism was necessary for the church. To be a member of the church required that one be baptized. Bunyan did not believe that. He believed that a person, if a person wanted to be baptized, then that was a good thing. But if they didn't want to be baptized, then baptism wasn't necessary. And that's why it's so hard for, for me, especially, who love, uh, I love John Bunyan, I love Pilgrim's Progress, uh, to admit that the Reformed Baptists did not consider John Bunyan to be a Baptist. And John Bunyan himself did not consider John Bunyan to be a Baptist. He belongs to the Congregational Independence, but not with a particular Baptist. So... Next person, Hansard Knowles. It says Knollies, but his name is actually pronounced Knowles. 15, born 1598, died 1691. There's a picture of him there. He received a master's from Cambridge. 1629, he was ordained to the Church of England. In 1636, pressure from William Laud. Remember, we talked about William Laud. Came, and so he resigned from the Church of England. And then he fled to New England. And served in a church in New Hampshire. So he was here in America. 1641, he returned to England because his father was sick. 1645, he became part of the Jacob Lathrop Jesse Church. His wife gave birth. And guess what the issue was that immediately came up? Should we baptize this baby? That's what he was used to. He struggled with the decision. He met with other believers and you'll be surprised at who he met with if you are anything of a, of a student. He met with a man by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs and another man by the name of Thomas Goodwin. These are two prominent Puritans. They discussed this issue with him and they convinced him, go with your conscience. So he decided that he would not baptize his child. Now that's revolutionary. 
I mean, if you think of you're coming from a Roman bath, Roman Catholic background, maybe yourself, you have a baby and you're not going to baptize your baby. What are the other people in your family who are all Roman Catholics? What are they going to think? What is wrong with you? Are you crazy? You have to baptize that baby. Put yourself in those shoes, but also understand that death and imprisonment was also a consequence. He himself became rebaptized in 1645, and he became pastor of the Broken Wharf Church at Cripplegate in London. If you look at the list of names who are on our confession of faith, Hansard Knowles is at the top of that list because, probably out of respect, he was about 91 at this time when it was written, and so they gave him the respect of putting his name there on that list. He spent a lot of time in prison for the faith. Uh, he... His church was the church that hosted the assembly for the 1689 Confession of Faith. Besides Keach and Knowles, Keach we're going to talk about in just a moment, he wrote the most of the books of all the Reformed Baptists. Benjamin Keach, let's move quickly, he was much younger than most of the Reformed Baptists. He grew up and was originally an Arminian minister. Around 1668, he became a particular Baptist. He married a woman that was a particular Baptist. That's not why he became a particular Baptist. He was already headed that way. He was ordained the pastor of a church called Horsley Down in 1668. That church developed into a very prominent church. After Keach, a man by the name of John Gill took the position of pastor in that church. After John Gill, a man by the name of John Rippon took the role of pastor in that church. And who can you think of the next person who is very prominent? In London, known as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, then took the role as pastor in that church. I can't wait if the Lord allows one day for me to go to that church. Keats wrote 43 books, traveled far and wide. He was famous in England and in America. These were the three leading men in the early particular Baptist churches. Last three, Hercules Collins. Uh, we were at a, a conference last year, and as we were at the conference, this name Hercules Collins came up. One of the other ministers texted me and said, Tony was with us, and said, isn't Hercules the guy you brought with you to the conference? <laughs> I said, no. Those of you who are listening online, he's 6'8", 300 pounds. Of muscle, though, 300 pounds of muscle. Hercules Collins was pastor and well regarded as a man of God with tremendous influence. He was in prison for a very long time. 1680, he published a little book. I have it here called the Orthodox Catechism. What it really is, is the Heidelberg Catechism that was rewritten with Baptist doctrines. Very important. Uh, Richard Barcellos gave me this. Uh, we were eating and he had this with him. And I said, why aren't you going to give me that? I'm serving. I'm giving you food today. He slid it across the table. Uh, next, Nehemiah Cox, the son of Benjamin Cox. His father, Benjamin, was a very important leader in the particular Baptist faith early on. Real quick story. Those who were gathering to write the Westminster Confession of Faith between 1643 and 1648, they were meeting at this place. Uh, I forget the name of it. Benjamin Cox, who was a Reformed Baptist, a particular Baptist. He went down to where they were meeting and writing this confession and he had a copy of our first confession, the first London Baptist Confession in 1644. He took copies and he began to pass them out to all those who were writing the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, why is that a big deal? Because the Westminster believers believed in infant baptism. So almost as a way of saying, hey guys, read this. 
He went to all those who were there. And guess what happened? He got thrown into prison. <laughs> Nehemiah was called to be pastor of the Petty France Church in London in 1675. He was one of the two editors of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. So he's one of the editors, one of the writers of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. His name is not on the list of those writers because he died before the confession was published. Our confession was written in 1677. He died uh, shortly before that. So, last but not least, William Collins. He was Nehemiah Cox's co-pastor and also the other editor on the London Baptist Confession of Faith. They were part of a large church, a church that had about 500 members. Brothers and sisters, that is our heritage. We continue that great tradition today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your, not necessarily in your word, but in understanding how you have used great men of God to preserve the teachings of the scriptures. And we pray that we would love and appreciate what they have preserved, and we pray that we would preserve those teachings for future generations. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.